Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. We're in 1 Timothy 3 today, so grab a Bible and turn with me there. And if there's any parents that would like your kids to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now, of course, it's fine to have them stay as well. Randy, in his prayer, mentioned the uh, members meeting that is coming up tonight at 6. Those are always important. This is an especially significant one. I would encourage um, everybody to be here. Uh, we will be, the elders will be formally uh, recommending that the church move ahead with a, a plan to build a, uh, to, to expand this building to double the amount of seating. And so the city has uh, approved the initial plan and we'll be giving you some documentation tonight and a lot of information about that. So um, if you're a member, please come at six. And if you're not, we'd love for you to Come see what we do in the second half of the meeting at seven. Today, though, this morning, we are continuing our journey through uh, First Peter. Uh, first, man, I'm a mess. Hopefully, this will clean up. Uh, first Timothy, uh, and I am going to read First Peter, so it's not completely out of the blue. But um, we're thinking about various uh, rhythms or habits necessary in a church for that church to uh, be healthy. So today we'll be looking at verses 1 to 7 of chapter 3. Um, what comes to mind when you hear the word authority? Authority. Does it have a positive or negative connotation? Does it bring thoughts of abundance or abuse, of selfishness or selflessness, of manipulation or protection. We would do well to consider not only what our gut reaction is, but especially why that is our gut reaction. There is no question that the idea of authority has fallen on hard times, and in some ways that's completely understandable. There is no shortage of failure among people in positions of power. And great harm has been done to families, to schools, to businesses, to countries, and even to churches by people who did not have sufficient character to be in the position of authority that they were in. Nevertheless, before we throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater, we would do well to consider what Scripture has to say about positions of leadership or authority before we decide they're all bad. Because our understandable revulsion against failure and abuse must not calcify into disdain for all authority. God, in fact, both in the quote-unquote secular realm and in the church realm, has given authority. And so to reject authority outright is to reject one of God's good gifts designed for our benefit and our flourishing. As we move from chapter 2 to chapter 3 today, we'll be coming up to this very issue, the issue of who's responsible for the majority of the leadership in a church. Specifically, Paul is going to share with us about the oversight of elders in the next paragraph, one to seven, 
And then next week, we'll be considering the other office in the church, that of deacons. But this morning, specifically 1 through 7. Look with me there. This saying is trustworthy. There's three places in the book of 1 Timothy it has that phrase. This is the second. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if one does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders, meaning those outside the membership of the church, non-Christians especially, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You'll notice in verse 1 it uses the phrase, the office of overseer, and then again in verse 2, the word overseer. That overseer is not a term we use very often. Um, It is not a customary term, even in the church. Therefore, the thoughts coming to your mind about what that is might be mainly that you have questions. I've tried to come up with a few questions I thought some may have, and those will sort of organize our time in this text today. So the first question we'll consider is, who are they? Who are overseers? Second question, what do they do? What's their job description? A third question, what do they need? By that I mean, what do they need in order to do the work they're called to do? And then finally, we'll think together about why does this matter? So we'll just walk through those four and consider, yes, this paragraph, but even broadly, what does is, what is the rest of the New Testament say about this topic? So first, um, who are they? Again, as I said, you'll notice right off the bat in verse 1, the word overseer. Paul here sets the topic for the whole paragraph. This entire paragraph, verses 1 through 7, is largely about the qualifications needed to hold a particular role in the church, namely the role or the office of overseer. Who are overseers? Well, according to the New Testament, if we look across the landscape of Matthew through Revelation, we hear them termed in different ways. But I think the main thing I'd want to say is that we need to remember that the local church is the visible gathering of a group of Christians who make a commitment to help each other stick with Jesus. That's what the local church, a a specific group of Christians in a particular place is. The church is not its buildings, it's not its budget, it's not the denomination it may or might not be a part of. It's not the particular programs it puts on or its leaders. The church is the people. You are the church. And the scriptures are clear that the adjudicating responsibility 
of a church's membership, discipline, and doctrine fall to you, to the members of the church. So we might put it this way, who is ultimately accountable before God for the membership, the discipline, and the doctrine of a church? It's you. It's the members. That's what being a congregational church means. But that leaves out the vast majority of things that must be decided on or led in a church. Who's to do all of those things? Well, in the wisdom of God, God has left a group of people, not a sort of CEO, senior pastor. That's Jesus. He is the senior pastor of every church. But a team of equals known as shepherds or pastors. When you carefully study the New Testament and synthesize its teachings, you end up finding there's three terms, overseer, pastor, and elder. And these all refer to the same group of people who are to lead the local church, overseer, pastor, and elder. Today, we largely use the word pastor. That is, oddly enough, the most infrequent of the three. But overseer, pastor, and elder all labor together to direct the church. Their authority extends up until the point of decisions related to membership, doctrine, and discipline. Those reside in you. The rest resides in them. Now, why would we say those refer to three groups of people? Some of you may have been a part of churches in the past that had elders and pastors, and they were different. Why would we say that's not the design of God? Well, there's a couple passages in the New Testament where all of those words are used in noun or verb form in which it's clear it's referring to the same group of people. So one of those I gave you a preview for earlier when I said 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, you'll see it here on the screen. So, I exhort the elders, that's the first occurrence of one of these words, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and as a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. Number two, shepherd. Shepherd is the verb form of the word pastor. What what is a pastor? A pastor is one who shepherds. So, that's the second form the second noun, uh, as a, it's, it's here as a verb, but the word pastor is the noun. And shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's again the verb form of the word overseer. So there you find all three terms referring to the same group of people. You find the same thing in Acts chapter 20, if you're interested in looking that up at some point. So biblically, that's who who overseers, elders, or pastors, some translations will even use the word bishop. That's what they're all referring to, the same group of people every local church is to have to lovingly lead them. At Churchill Mill, we currently have four active elders and a fifth on sabbatical this year. Randy, who you uh, were blessed by his praying earlier, Randy and Todd, are both brothers who work full-time jobs outside the church 
And then after they sort of clock out, then they give themselves in their quote-unquote extra time to shepherding you. Tad, who I just saw come in, Tad, and Mike, is Mike still here? Mike, these two brothers work part-time in roles outside the church and part-time in the church, and in their quote-unquote extra time, they pastor you. And it is my joy to serve alongside these men. These brothers are godly, humble, generous, and remarkably sacrificial in the way they give themselves under God for your good. And I wonder if you would thank them with me. Pam thinks that's funny. Why is that funny, Pam? (laughs) He was clapping for the others. Yes. Yeah, if you'd listen, you'd know this was multiple people, not just Randy. Now, what does it mean, practically speaking, that we have Randy, Todd, Tad, Mike, and Chuck? What are they to do? Each of us, when we take a place of employment, we want a job description. We want to know what are we being asked to do? What are we signing up for? Well, that's the second question. What are they to do? Again, if we look across the New Testament, we find that elders are commissioned by God to do five things. They are to feed, lead, care, protect, and set an example. That is their job description. They are to feed, lead, care, protect, and set an example. So to keep us all on our toes, let's take those in reverse order. The last one, to set an example. If you look carefully back with our noses in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you look carefully at this list, you'll see that Overseers are not super-Christians with super-abilities. They're not given the responsibility because they're the most gifted or skilled among the church. In fact, this list of qualifications is, quite frankly, unremarkable. With the exception of able to teach at the end of verse 2, there's nothing in this list that shouldn't be true of or be the pursuit of every Christian man. It's simply a description of a mature, godly man. And if you remove the phrase husband of one wife, which clearly must mean male, and if you remove the qualification of able to manage his household well, all of those are simply character traits every Christian man or woman ought to be aiming for. Why is that? Well, it's because your pastors are not built of stuff different than you. They're not different in quality or quantity. They're not of a different spiritual class than the average church member. There is no priestly group and laity. That does not exist. 
Elders are first and foremost simply members of the church like every other member. Their fundamental relationship with Church on Mill is not one of employment or one of leadership. It's one of belonging. It's one of signing up for the same commitments that everybody else makes. Their role is to be a physical, tangible, visible team of godly men who can, first of all, not do stuff, but rather be looked at as examples. We say in one of our position papers that these, are, these should be the kind of men you would want your sons to become and your daughters to marry. They are to be looked at as what's typical of mature Christians, again with those few exceptions that I've pointed out. There are to be people who simply say, follow me as I follow Christ. So they must be good, godly examples. Now, second, again, working from the bottom up, we see there to protect. Elders protect God's people. So think of the basic example or analogy or metaphor, whatever word connects with you best, of a flock of sheep. So a a big group of sheep out in a field. What is the great danger they face? The danger they face is primarily that of wolves. Wolves have a particular methodology. They work to run in and create chaos in order to isolate a sheep to itself and then to go in for the kill. Friends, did you know that there are both forces, spiritual forces, and people often co-laboring to seek to isolate you and go in for the kill? Do you know that you are vulnerable to spiritual deception? and to harm. That's part of what it means to be a sheep. You're not a wolf. You're not a predator. You are a sheep. And our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 5 uses that terminology, our chief shepherd isn't here physically. He is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, where he's interceding for us, It's not as though he's not involved and doesn't care. But he's there. And so how would we be protected from wolves? Well, primarily by God giving some of the sheep the responsibility to watch out for wolves. The book of 1 Timothy is written primarily because there were a group probably of elders who themselves had become wolves. And what form does that harm come in? Well, it doesn't come like you might think it would. It doesn't come in, in usually, in obvious, overt ways, but rather in covert, manipulative ways. And so, the the 
form of this attack comes in that of false teaching. So telling you things that are partly right and partly wrong. And if you're on a boat, for example, and you're traveling a very long ways to get to a particular destination, if you're one, two, three degrees off, you won't know it. You'll only know it when you end up uh, hundreds of miles away from your intended destination. One or two or three clicks off of godly gospel doctrine can lead us into spiritual ruin. This is tricky work. It is complex because you have to try to discern who is a biting sheep, hurt and confused, and who is a wolf. And that is not always obvious. Pray for us as we try to do this work and take it seriously. The next word is a lot much happier word, care. Overseers are also tasked to care for God's people. We see that in verse 5. How will they care for God's church? One of the main ways we seek to care for you, brothers and sisters, is through prayer. Prayer is perhaps, outside of teaching, the most important thing that we do. Every, other, uh, every first and third Thursday, we get together as a team uh, at 6 p.m., and we spend at least the first hour praying. We just take a, a next section of about 20 to 30 names from our membership directory, spend a few minutes talking about how those 20 or so people are, and then pray for you. We would love it if there are particular ways we can be praying for you that wouldn't be just self-evident from interaction with you. So email us, call us, text us. We'd love the opportunity to pray for you specifically. Several of the elders spend nearly every evening of the week ministering in various kinds of groups or in one-on-one ministry. I'm stunned at what I'm the only full-time paid pastoral worker currently in our church. I'm stunned at the dedication of these men. They are my heroes. Together we aim to shepherd Church on Mill, particularly as it relates to care, by building a culture of care. A church could never receive all the care it deserves from only its elders. And that's biblical. So think with me about the one another's of the New Testament. Things like admonish one another, care for one another, confess your sin one to another, serve one another, support one another, weep with one another, rejoice with one another. I could go on and on and on because there's tons of them. Those commands are not given pastor to people, but sheep to sheep. God's design is that we would grow up in Christ by serving and caring for each other. This is an arena in which you really thrive, brothers and sisters, in your commitment level one to another and the way you serve each other and live out these one another so well. Thank you.
Elders also lead. That's number two on the list. Now that gets us back to that word authority. We could say there, elders exercise authority, but that just sounds even confrontational, doesn't, doesn't it? It doesn't need to. But we're living in a time where we are suspect. We look at any leader as suspect. That isn't going to turn out well. Leaders are gifts from God, be it governmental leaders, educational leaders, bosses at work, or in the church. Brothers and sisters, unless an elder is instructing you to sin, or unless an elder is seeking to bind your conscience about things the Bible clearly leaves open to individual convictions, you would do well to submit yourself to their leadership. In fact, that's what the book of Hebrews commands. The passage describes the pastor here by using the word overseer. Overseers oversee. Pretty complicated. That is, they have a spiritual responsibility to lead, to manage, to direct the people of God. This is how Jesus, in many ways, would care for us today. Through the mature, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable leadership of pastors. Our world is on fire with the blowtorch that all authority must be resisted. Let's not light that fire here. Unless these men are lighting aflame the church with false doctrine or with unrepentant sin. As we submit to Jesus' good shepherding of us through the elders... That includes even the elders one to another. I'll never forget the first decision that came to the the elder table. We discussed it, debated it, prayed over it, and then we voted. And I lost. I did not get what I wanted. And I felt pretty strongly about it. That was a Thursday. The following Sunday, we needed to do something with the decision we made. And guess who was the one who had to stand and do it? It was me. And so I was tasked to set before you as good something that I didn't think was best. It only took a few weeks for me to see how wrong I was and how right they were. I have learned in my own submission that there is wisdom in the plurality and that God very often speaks through the bunch as they correct the one. This has been good for me. I believe it's good for you too. Finally, elders feed God's people. Elders feed God's people. So imagine with me, if you would, you go to lunch after this, you put a bib on, and Tad 
spoon feeds you. That's a visual, isn't it? Obviously, the feed you doesn't mean physical food. It it means spiritual food. Elders are tasked to feed you the feast that God's Word is. They just set before you the meal that we all would eat together of the truth that God gives us. If you look closely at this list of qualifications, you'll see the only one that truly is is a skill, a competency, is able to teach. That's what distinguishes an elder from what we'll talk about next week, a deacon. First and foremost, overseers, pastors, and elders are teachers of God's Word. They give themselves to studying the Bible and saying what the Bible says, and they feel like they are on God's leash, unfree to roam about using their authority to tell you to do things that are different than or in addition to what God says. Some do this through Sunday morning preaching, others in connection classes, others in one-on-one counsel at the dinner table or over in the MU. Teaching is to eldership what swimming is to fish. It's just what you do. Galatians 1 is incredibly clear, brothers and sisters, that the church bears the ultimate responsibility for if there begins to be false doctrine taught in the church. And so if we teach false doctrine, then your responsibility is to come up and correct us. And if we repent and fix it publicly, great. If we refuse, get rid of us and get new elders. It matters that much. So that's what pastors or elders do. Now, what do they need? What do elders need in order to do that kind of work? Well, if you look at this list of seven verses, you'll see that godly qualified men need three things to shepherd God's people. Number one, they need an aspiration for the work, an aspiration. Number two, they need a godliness. That is, they need to exemplify what's described here. And number three, they need a competency. They need to be able to preach and teach and handle the pace of life that is required. Think with me first, though, about aspiration. 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The word aspire literally means to reach for something, to reach for something. Brothers, if there is within you some sense of oughtness to be reaching for the kind of ministry described in 1 Timothy 3, it may be that the Holy Spirit is putting in you the desire to do this kind of work, to give yourself to this. If so, the text says that you desire a good work or a noble task. Men, we all ought to aim to be these kind of emulation-worthy men. But in addition to that 
healthy desire to grow up in Jesus, the Spirit will put within some a sense of, if I don't throw my name in the hat that I'm willing to consider this, then I think I am sinning. Church, we need more elders. This family called Church on Mill is continuing to grow, and the needs are great. So I'd invite you to pray with us that God would bring more men to lead. Acts 20.28 says that the Holy Spirit is the one who chooses ultimately who these people are. Acts 20.28. And so, would you pray that God would be setting that desire, that aspiration, within another one or two or three people who could help care for you well? Now, how do we know who the Holy Spirit has directed? Well, unfortunately, He doesn't, like, send name tags down from the sky that they just put on. Now, we got to do some work to try and figure that out. So, how do we do that? Well, first, there is that internal desire. That's the first thing Timothy went to, Paul went to for Timothy. Look for people who are aspiring to this. Now, can you aspire for it for the wrong reasons? Yes, of course. But that doesn't mean the mere desire is a bad desire. In fact, if you know what the work is and you desire it, there may be something wrong with you. This is not easy. That was a joke that didn't land well. Thank you, Jessica. (laughs) Brothers, if you, again, if you aspire to it, come talk with us. That's the first step in a journey. That internal interest must then be explored by the elders. One way we do that is through, I don't know, every six to eight weeks, we revisit a list of names of people we're just kind of watching. Because the kind of elder you want is the kind that's doing that kind of work without the title. The kind of person who doesn't really care if they have the title, they just want to love God's people. After some period of time in which we're watching and observing and then feel good about the potential for that person, we invite them to come to a 20-week discovering eldership sort of discovery class in which we're simply doing readings and praying together about what eldership is. It's not uncommon in that process for that brother to decide, this was super helpful to me, but this isn't for me. But eventually, there are some who do keep moving forward, and eventually those who move forward, we bring to you, because we would understand the final decision of who is the Spirit appointing to be elders to reside in you. I think that's an implication of the fact that these qualifications are here. Why else would they be there? Yes, they might help the elders know what they're supposed to be like, but they are to be the lens through which you view a potential future elder. When you're asked to vote on elders, you're not being asked, do I like this person? Do I enjoy hanging out with them? Do they have a nice personality? 
would I love to spend a week on vacation with them? Do they do everything the way I would want it? It's none of those things. It's are they qualified? Is their character ready? We hope next January to begin in one of those eldership, discovering eldership classes. So church, if you see people you think are already sort of eldering without the title, boy, we'd sure love to hear from you. There may be people we've missed. So let us know your thoughts about who might be good to invite. So they need that first to do the work, an aspiration for the work. They also need, I mentioned, a godliness and a competency. Let me just speak to those together because they're, I think, more self-evident. Elders need godliness. The work of overseeing demands the character outlined in these verses. These qualities are not arbitrary. They are, this kind of person is needed for this kind of work. If a um, person that was four foot tall decided to sign up for the NBA, they're not going to make it. It doesn't matter how skilled they are, they're simply not tall enough. The, a person could be a good leader, but if they're not tall enough, meaning godly, they won't be able to do the work. Do a deep dive on any one of these qualifications and you'll find why it's essential for an elder to be that. A gifted but immature or ungodly elder is a wrecking ball. The swinging of his emotions, the whims of his personality, and his latest great idea he wants to implement will all swing in and crash against the people of God. This is why it's so essential that elders be godly. If you study this list again, I know I've said it, but it's just so opposite of the way we tend to think. This is not a list of skills. This is a list with the exception of able to teach, about character. Yes, if elders are married, they need to be competent in teaching God's Word and in showing that in the home. The quality of his marriage will demonstrate his ability to lovingly lead. But outside of able to teach and has a quality home, the rest of these are not skills. I would never, ever, ever have become a pastor if there were a list of skills because I don't have very many. I'm not kidding. <coughs> One commentator I read this week said this, and I think it's good for us to hear it. We must not make the mistake of valuing gifts over graces and competency over character. The world is awash with gifted but godless leaders. It must not be so here. 
Elders are not necessarily the most gifted people in the body. They do need to be among the most godly. Before charisma, talents, ability, magnetic personality, or administrative genius, what the church needs are godly pace setters called elders. The damage done by immature people who are given an office and authority they should not yet have is enormous. So pray that we would be mature and where we fail in these, help us see them that we might continue to grow up in Christ. Now finally, and then I'll wrap this up, why does this stuff matter? I don't know, um, I didn't do well in math, but percentage-wise, the vast majority of you, of us, will not become elders. And so why spend a whole Sunday when we only get 52 of them a year? Why devote an entire sermon to this? Well, it's the next passage. And we trust that everything God tells us is for our good. But also, this gives us an important matter to give our attention to. The consequences to a church of getting this wrong are enormous. Unless you've only come to Christ in the last year or two here, if you've been a believer a while, you know of churches and the harm that's been done by pastors who shouldn't have been pastoring. Everywhere we look are examples of a basic principle that God's hardwired into His universe. It's in classrooms and in countries, in companies and in clubs, in schools and in sports, and it's especially evident in churches. Here's the principle. The character of the leaders shapes the health of the group. The character of the leaders shapes the health of the group. I don't care what kind of group it is. That is true. And so if you're concerned about your own spiritual growth and you're concerned about the spiritual growth of your fellow brothers and sisters, then the quality of the pastors is a concern for you. We might summarize this paragraph in this way. Godly elders are vital to the health, ministry, and reputation of God's church. Godly elders are vital to the health, ministry, and reputation of God's church. Because as the elders go, so will the church. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your mercy and grace and kindness to us in that you've given us not only the chief shepherd, but also under shepherds, people who are to represent you as they act like you by relying on you. Thank you for giving us a lack of scandal among the eldership. We pray that would continue and you would raise up more. In Jesus' name, amen.